You're tuned in to WPVM LP in Asheville, and this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Massive Attack with Sinead O'Connor.
Every now and then, I pull down the Dutch oven, roll out some dough, and make chicken and dumplings. It's a ritual that happens at least a few times a year, and usually hits on those days when I start to remember family dinners at my grandmother's house. I still make banana pudding for my father every birthday and for special occasions, just the way his mother did, using the same method she used. For some, it's mom's tuna noodle casserole. For others, it's their aunt's deviled eggs, dad's kimchi, or just frozen grapes from the freezer the way your sisters liked them. No matter the dish, food can often serve as a memory machine, taking us back to specific times, places, and people. Some of us are lucky enough to have those recipes handed down to us. Others spend chunks of our lives trying to recreate them without notes. And others have the memories. An evening in the kitchen with her mother left novelist Patricia Smith with a particularly acute understanding of this connection. The potato salad, I say, the one you always make. My mother looks at me funny as if I've just spoken French, as if I'm asking her to prepare chocolate ganache or creme brulee or Julia Child's boeuf bourguignon. She rifles through her index cards and beams brightly. I found it, she says, and pads over to the couch where I'm sitting and shows me her recipe for Thanksgiving mashed potatoes and sour cream. It's July, and my siblings and their families are coming to my mother's house for a day at the beach. I'm trying to plan dinner, and my sister especially loves my mother's potato salad, the one my mother has made every summer of my life, 50-plus years' worth of potato salad, the one with hard-boiled eggs and yellow mustard, the one that up until now has never required a recipe. Mom, I say again, potato salad, the one you always make. She snatches the card from my hand and her face darkens. I don't know what you're talking about, she snaps. She shoves the card back into the box and slams down the cover. This is how it begins, the slipping away. Later, when we are all gathered after an afternoon at the beach and I assure my mother that I've got dinner under control, that I don't need her help, that she should relax on the deck with her grandchildren. She will call me a piece of shit. In all my life, I've not heard her curse. My mother, who didn't allow crap. Swearing, she said, was an insult to her intelligence. And now she has me in tears, cursing at me directly, storming out to the deck, angry for reasons I don't at that moment understand. The forgetting and repeating of stories has been happening for a couple of summers. At first, it's hard to know whether or not the forgetting and repeating are of the normal aging variety or the beginning of something else. But this day and these events confirm my fears even before we get the official diagnosis. What does it mean, the forgetting? What happens to the self when the memories are lost? I wonder how much my mother realizes what is going on. Does she already count her losses? She minds not driving. The car was taken away, she tells me over the phone, because she's too old. Aging seems to her a betrayal, something that even at 85 she does not want to admit is happening. She sees herself as we all do, 
the younger version still alive in our heads, still laughing with friends, enjoying the beach, still working, traveling to France. Two years after the potato salad incident, I'm searching for something to bring to a holiday gathering when I come across an index card from marinated pork tenderloin written in my mother's cursive. There, folded into the loops and precise handwriting, my mother's generous spirit and good humor, her voice full of enthusiasm. I don't know exactly why I'm crying. My mother is still alive and still enjoying our visits and phone calls, but already the loss is too much to bear. Already some essential piece of her is missing, irretrievable like those lost family recipes. From here, things will only get worse. I'm scared each time I call that she'll hesitate and wonder who I am, but so far it hasn't happened. I'm scared, too, about my own forgetting, which suddenly seems foreboding. Each name that escapes me, a sign that maybe I, too, will slip away. The self that I think I've been creating will cease to exist, which, of course, is the truth for all of us. Aging shows us daily that we, too, are headed in the inevitable direction. Our limited movements, creaky bones, the rather sudden inability to see well enough to drive at night. We have such limited control. And yet, somewhere tucked away, we are still there. The mother who offers her young daughter the chance to cook dinner once a week, who helps her search through cookbooks and plan the meal, who, alongside her daughter, bakes brownies and Congo bars and chocolate chip cookies from scratch. We are still there, my mother and I, the mixer whirring, spatulas folding, wooden spoons stirring. My mother offers the beaters for licking, and can I help it if this is how I learn what love is? If only I had remembered that summer day in my mother's kitchen. Offer the beaters to lick. Offer her again this memory. We are still here. Still here. Patricia Smith reading her story in my mother's kitchen. To find it and all of our backstories, visit dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, head to dirty-spoon.com. Jack around the 
watched the second season of Padma Lakshmi's Hulu series, Taste the Nation, you might have caught a brief glimpse of a familiar face on their Appalachia episode. While John may have only been on screen for a brief quote or two, long before the series was even shot, the producers had reached out to him as a consultant on what they had planned to cover in their forays into the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
In light of Taste the Nation bringing the conversation to the forefront, we thought we'd revisit a story from our very first season, when John did his best to answer that question, what does it mean to be Appalachian? Here he is reading his story from 2018, a mantra. This fall, I was once again invited to the Terra Vida Festival in Chapel Hill. The three-day symposium of culinary nerdism has become one of my favorite food events in an industry chock-full of exceedingly mediocre festivals. I won't get into my hatred of the food festival here, but consider it fierce and long-suffering. But there's something about Colleen Minton's Terra Vida. Based around the idea of cultivating a slow foods, farm-to-table movement, and a more mindful way of eating, the grand tasting brings together some of the Triangle's more interesting kitchens. The dinners feature authors that take their books beyond recipes and into the heritage of many foods. And their classes range from social justice in the restaurant industry to tracing the roots of where our foods come from. Hint, if you're in the South, a lot of it comes from Africa. But the thing that caught me by the sleeve and wouldn't let me go this year was the course on Appalachian culture. Vittles author Ronnie Lundy, Blind Pig founder Mike Moore, Ian Bowden of Virginia's The Shack, and the Seasonal School of Culinary Arts director Susie Gott-Sigure were all there. Well, Ronnie got waylaid when her praised Astrovan broke down. They were talking about what it means to be Appalachian. In the time that I've been writing about food, and in particular, food in Appalachia, I have never been able to truly pinpoint what is distinct about Appalachian cuisine, or culture for that matter, other than the fact that it is sour, aged, and long-held, much like our prejudices. So upon leaving Chapel Hill and returning to the hills where I was raised, I started poring over the idea with a little more intent. What were the things that I learned from my elders, my grandmother, the women at her church, my aunts and uncles, my father and mother, the people I've met along the way, what did they teach me? For most of that wisdom, I can whittle it down to a phrase, one that could perhaps even serve as a mantra. Make stock, bake bread, and preserve what you love. Let's start with that last bit, the pickles and preserves. Both my grandmother and my great-grandmother were canners. In fact, their primary recipe books were canning books. I've always liked that, because they understood that canning was a form of cooking, and that the flavors you include in the jar would be the things your guests might taste come Thanksgiving dinner. There's something quite personal about the flavors you hand-select to include in your canned green beans versus the can you might have picked up for 89 cents at the grocery store on your way home. Do you can with garlic, black pepper, red pepper for spice? Do you use herbs or ginger? Everyone seems to do it differently. But the most important part of canning seems to be what one chooses to preserve. After all, we tend to save what we love. One of my favorite results of this Appalachian tradition of canning and pickling is that it means that foods that would otherwise be purely seasonal become year-round features on the dinner table. The tomatoes you harvested from the garden in June are savored in March in a scratch-made tomato sauce, eggs in purgatory bubbling away. The wild strawberries from that hike in July come back to life on warm biscuits after you've been sledding. But it also goes a little deeper. That preservation means a lot more than just the summer harvest. 
Preserving what you love means saving those parts of the culture that are ingrained in you, concentrating them, and keeping them for the future. These often clothe themselves in simple gestures, manners, and habits. Like when your neighbor comes looking for a part for his broken shelf in his shed, and you happen to have one, you give it to him, and you understand that you can settle it later, or that it'll all just shake out in the wash. Or when your church or town hall meeting ends, you all stay and help fold up the chairs and sweep up the floor, because if you don't, someone else will have to. Or when your friend is having a fight with his wife, you let him crash on your couch so that they can have some space with people they know and trust. These things are innate in our culture at our best times, when we are ripe. And just like the peak harvest of your garden, the best you can offer should be preserved, even if that means pickling. Baked bread. Every culture has bread. It is one of the building blocks of civilization. In fact, the desire to manage and grow wheat in order to make bread was really what brought the first tribes of people together in Sumer and Egypt to develop the first systems of government in human history. Exchanging for bread was the inspiration for money as a token of value, hence the slang term bread for cash. And even Jesus coined the term for soaking up time with your friends and family as breaking bread. I was in Vermont a while back, bumming around the Appalachian Mountains in the Northern Kingdom, right off the border with Canada. My friend Jen had coaxed me into the hills to visit the Bread and Puppet Museum in the tiny town of Glover. For those not familiar with the Bread and Puppet, they were a group of artists that banded together around Peter Schumann in 1962 to protest the Vietnam War through the love of art and puppetry. But these aren't just any puppets. Towering, multi-story paper mache creatures loom from the ceilings, warped creatures depicting the horrors of war, the pompous corruption and callous views of world leaders, and the ravaged remnants of the people caught in the wake of global conflict. The museum is most definitely worth the drive should you find yourself in Vermont. But what is more important for our needs in this story is not the puppets, but the name. Bread and Puppet came from Schumann's philosophy that art should be like good bread. Nourishing, carefully made, delicious, and cheap. So that anyone can be fed. Because that's the thing about bread. It's the great leveler of food. Both the finest white tablecloth restaurants, as well as the diviest soul spots, and even fast food joints, they all serve bread. It is the universal language for nourishment a common tongue among all cultures. But what makes bread so great to me is the care and attention to detail it takes to make it. Unlike stock, it requires precise measurements, careful handling, and most importantly, time. It is a time-honored tradition, and something that, when shared, is the ultimate culinary declaration of affection and camaraderie. The only thing we have in this life of true value is our time. And lastly, make stock. My father seems to have always understood and made great effort to convey to his children that value is not inherent in something, rather it is created, that every situation has its fair share of downs and disappointments, but that even the worst of what we go through can be pressed into something of value. 
I keep a Ziploc bag in my freezer that I cram full of every trimming from every carrot, radish, celery, and turnip, each onion, cauliflower, broccoli, and garlic in, as well as every corn husk, onion skin, chicken bone, or shrimp shell. When the bag is full, I dump it all in a big stock pot and slowly simmer the random assortment of scraps overnight. By the next morning, there is an otherworldly reduction of compacted and concentrated flavor. Once strained and seasoned with salt and pepper, I freeze that stock in pint-sized pours in Ziploc bags that I lay flat in the freezer so that I can line them up like books in a library on my freezer shelves. I can make soups with these, spice up a packet of ramen on a drunk night, or even just drink them when I'm not feeling well. I use them in my chicken and dumplings, in my coca van, and even to make my grits. The cornerstone of cooking is stock, and the cornerstone of stock is your trash. There is no more literal example of turning trash into treasure more prescient than stock. And there is nothing more pertinent to Appalachian culture than creating something of value from what others tend to waste.
about every culture has some form of pasta, and the best is always homemade. Sure, there's a place for that perfect machine-cut fusilli or the recent trend of cascatelli, but when someone kneads the dough, rolls it thin, and freshly cuts the pasta, there's something almost holy about what winds up on the plate. Nate Crawford grew up eating the stuff, and in all honesty, he really didn't get the hype. At least not until he had an epiphany on a cold Chicago weekend. My first real understanding of fancy food was homemade pasta. I knew that it was fancy because I could see just how much time it took and how much effort was involved. And, like most fancy things, I saw that homemade pasta was a rarity. My family would make it about once a year and it was always a big production. My parents would pull out the pasta roller my great aunt gave them as a wedding present 
and then drive my brother and I to the specialty grocery store on the other side of Omaha. Once we were back home, we would all take turns stirring and kneading and complaining. The thing that always sticks out in my memory is that making homemade pasta would take over our entire weekend. Between shopping for the pasta ingredients, making the pasta sauce, rolling out the pasta dough, and cleaning the pasta mess, there wasn't time for much else. With the inclusion of children and an average amount of family dysfunction, an afternoon's worth of work would stretch out over days. And as my first real understanding of fancy food, it was also one of the first times I had to ask myself, do I hate fancy food? This pasta sauce didn't taste like the jarred marinara I loved at all. It wasn't sweet, it wasn't bright and acidic, it was barely red. This sauce, for some sick and twisted reason, had carrots in it. Carrots! And as a child with a strong brand loyalty to bowtie-shaped farfalle pasta, I was not exactly impressed by hand-cut tagliatelle. I was happy to leave everything up to the experts at Ragu and Barilla. I find it a little embarrassing how long it took for me to fully come around to loving homemade pasta. In my early 20s, I started cooking a lot more. It started because after college, I was suddenly responsible for all the food I was eating. But it continued because I was really enjoying myself. Then, one year, my mom had a birthday. I asked her if there was anything she wanted me to make, and she said that she wanted homemade pasta. I agreed to make bolognese, and my dad agreed to make the tagliatelle, and I was silently furious. It had been years since I was home for a pasta weekend, but I figured I still more or less remembered what it tasted like. As I spent a long afternoon cutting carrots and pouring milk and wine over ground beef, I was wishing that my mom had picked something different. But in the end, it tasted amazing. How had I ever wanted anything else? Ultimately, I think it was inevitable that homemade pasta would win me over. It is just that delicious. And it is homemade pasta that brings me to last winter when I was locked out of my apartment. Getting locked out of my apartment has always been a terrible fear of mine. As a frightened little fraidy cat, I am incredibly disciplined about checking my pockets for keys. I smack my pockets to hear the keys jingle and then ball them up in my fist before walking out the door. Walking through the tiny courtyard to my apartment building, I smacked my pocket and heard the sound I was hoping for. When I took the keys out, however, I discovered that my key ring was newly bent and the key to my apartment door had escaped. I stood outside in the Chicago winter, panicking. For some, I realized that the fear of being locked out might be a foreign concept. I have large parts of my family who live in the cozy sorts of towns where they still leave their doors unlocked. But I grew up in a door-locking household. My parents always locked the doors, and I learned from watching them. I've locked the door everywhere I've lived since. From Nebraska to Philadelphia to Chicago, I'm always locking doors. I'm a fiend for the thing. My grandmother used to leave her door unlocked. The next neighbor was a mile away, and it is probably fair to say that anyone who was willing to travel down the long gravel road to her home to steal her cathode ray tube television or rusting exercise bike probably wouldn't have been stopped by a deadbolt. That said, it also meant that people would just appear. If I was making Rice Krispie treats in the kitchen and heard a ruckus in the garage, I was just supposed to assume that those ruckus makers were either related to me or friends of my grandmother and that everything was fine. And everything always was fine. But that is not how I want to live my life. I do not want the barrier between me and the outside world to be a dotted line. 
I like the clarity of knowing when I am alone and knowing that I have control over when or if that changes. It is literally a feeling of security. The irony, of course, is that locking my door is also the first step in locking myself out of my apartment. In my nightmares, getting locked out always looks the same. First, my phone immediately dies. Or maybe it gets stolen by a rabid dog or a cash-strapped bird of prey. I consider trying to borrow some stranger's phone, but realize that I do not know anyone's phone number from memory. At best, I could ask whether they would mind me logging into Instagram on their phone and hope that some of my friends have fallen off the wagon of their social media detox. Unable to get into my apartment or call for help, I am left to walk from friend's apartment to friend's apartment, hoping someone will be home. Naturally, no one is, and I slowly start to disappear like I'm a character in Back to the Future. My tears freezing in the courtyard, I was thrilled to find that my phone was not dead, and all of the phone-snatching falcons I was worried about had gone south for the winter. I called my girlfriend, Emily, who invited me over and promised we'd sort it all out. Emily and I met in an improv comedy class, which never gets any less embarrassing to say. She was unstoppably funny, confidently calm, and tall as hell. I'm 6'6", so I was desperate for the 6'2 stunner with the pancake tattoo to notice me. Over the course of a month, texting turned into trading books, which turned into proper dates that turned into spending almost all of our time together. By the time I got locked out of my apartment, things were only just starting to get serious. We were used to saying, I love you, but no one had met anyone's parents yet. We were starting to talk about the future, but that future didn't stretch much beyond Christmas. Calling Emily with a problem was nothing new, but I was mortified to call crying over a closed door. Complicating matters slightly, my apartment building was in a bit of a transitional phase. By transitional phase, I mean that my property's manager had recently been fired with a strange mixture of fanfare and apology. I still don't know what she did wrong, but I do know that her email response time showed the sort of poor work-life balance that I really needed when I found myself locked out of my apartment on a Friday night. Without her, I had no clue who to call. There was an emergency locksmith's number online, and they could come for a price. $100 to unlock the door, plus $50 for coming on the weekend. But I still wouldn't have a key. And I had to be at work that weekend, meaning that I'd either have to leave my door unlocked or pay $150 every day until Monday. So, somewhat quickly, heading over to Emily's place while I sorted things out turned into staying with Emily for the weekend. When one of your worst fears comes true, there are worse consequences. Emily and I watched movies, played card games, and ate chicken fingers very carefully so as not to get any crumbs in her bed. The weekend could have been a lovely staycation if I wasn't absolutely falling apart. A mixture of general anxiety, guilt, and a lack of clean clothes took its toll. I'm a pretty feeble person, so I didn't have too far to fall. Emily was endlessly welcoming, but I couldn't relax. By Sunday, I was really dragging. I got back from work just in time to see Emily leave to catch a train to a bus to the Skokie Theater to see our friend in a Tennessee Williams play. I hit the bed hard. Restlessly exhausted, I found myself overwhelmed with gratitude. How lucky was I to have somewhere to go? To have someone to help me out? And how lucky for that someone to be so sweet and kind and wonderful, that there is somewhere so full of jokes and generosity and love. I realized I needed to act on these feelings. And then it hit me. What do you do when you want to do something nice for the person you love and you have five hours before your girlfriend is back from cat on a hot tin roof? Make bolognese from scratch. The first step, 
of course, was to buy the pasta ingredients. Heading to my local Kroger, I was checking every 30 seconds to make sure I had not lost Emily's keys too. I don't know if I've ever gripped a carabiner tighter. I quickly gathered everything I needed, tomatoes, beef, nutmeg, even some blasted carrots, and hurried back to Emily's to finish my big surprise dinner before her return. The cold and the pain it inflicts does wonders for keeping me on a deadline. Saying that the secret ingredient to any dish is love has become a bit of a joke. I'm more likely to say it laughingly as I hand someone a 7-Eleven coffee than I am after baking a delicious apple crumble. But there is an enthusiasm I adopt when making food for someone I care about. An enthusiasm that pairs oh so well with a bolognese sauce. I become so precious about my onions and carrots, so attentive as it simmers for hours. The feeling is almost like a runner's high. At first, I felt tired and overwhelmed, quickly spreading a mess around someone else's kitchen before I'd even gotten a pot on the stove. But soon, the sweat, the stress, the mess turned into a joy. Every action brought me closer to someone I love, even while they were in the suburbs, watching our friend hobble around on crutches with a southern accent. Standing over a big pot of bubbling goo, stirring constantly and waiting for the milk to boil off, I was struck by a strong sense of connection. I started imagining the centuries of people who had spent far more afternoons than me over their own big pot, cooks, chefs, and hash slingers making the absolute best food they can to show their love to the people they care about. I started thinking about my grandmother making bacon, eggs, and hot chocolate from scratch every morning for my mother who just wanted to eat cereal. I started thinking about the professor at Indiana University who adopted my parents in grad school and would spend Saturday afternoons at the stove making matar paneer. I thought about my own parents and the soups and pot roasts and spinach rolls they worked so hard on. And in it all, I was so happy to be a part of that lineage of love. The next morning, I walked to a small office on the ground floor of another apartment building and picked up a new key. The woman in the office told me, you know, you really got to keep a backup key somewhere. And now I do. That night, I took my keys to the hardware store and gave a copy to Emily. George Awood reading Nate Crawford's story, Homemade. To find that story and all of our backstories, head to dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Oh,
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Agamides, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Massive Attack, Sinead O'Connor, Depeche Mode and Wetleg, Siobhan Levy, Becca Moncari, and Brittany Howard, Fair Hazel, Molly Pardon, Nation of Language, The Meters, The Album Leaf, Colleen, and Blue Dot Sessions. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.